Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, April 13th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's financial show, we're going to take a look at fintech's growing role in the coronavirus response. We're going to dig into why Warren Buffett is selling stocks. We've got some listener questions to get to, as well as some stocks that we're watching here for the coming week. Joining me, as always, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, did you have a good weekend? Pretty good. I'm about a month past needing a haircut. So, um, <laughs> other than that, I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm getting close to letting my wife buzz my hair. I, you know, I think we're all probably getting to that point. I figure. Uh, I, I was thinking at one point. I was thinking at one point. It actually crossed my mind to take my beard trimmer to my head, but then I thought maybe that wouldn't be the best <laughs> idea. I think uh, you know that might result in a broken beard trimmer. So I'm just gonna kind of just kind of let it go until we get back to work. You know, man, whenever that may be. Yeah, I'd appreciate any home haircutting tips our <laughs> listeners might want to tweet at us. Yeah, yeah, like absolutely, absolutely. We'll make sure to get that email address and Twitter feed out there by the end <laughs> of the show for you. Well, let's jump into um, let's jump into to really the lead story today. We, you know, this is some news that broke over the weekend, and it's not really a surprise. We were hoping this would materialize, but it, the news came out over the weekend that PayPal and Intuit, among others. Um, have been approved by the Small Business Administration to take part in the Paycheck Protection Program, and that PPP that that program that that has been one of the, one of the government's responses to really trying to help small, medium-sized businesses and, and larger businesses, I guess, the businesses that need it the most um, to to help them cope with what is what has obviously been uh, an, an unprecedented at least for our lifetime, type of shutdown of the economy. And, you know, Matt, when I saw this news break over the weekend, I thought, finally, I mean, this this is good. You know, I, I was excited to see it, not not even from a shareholder perspective, but just from, you know, that I, I use these tools an awful lot, whether it's PayPal or Square. We know the benefits that these fintech companies provide to consumers from a liquidity uh, perspective, from, from a perspective of access to funds and how quickly... Uh, they're able to turn, you know. I so for me personally, I saw this news. I was pretty excited about it. I don't know. What do you think about this? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, these companies have been lobbying to be included on this since pretty much before it was even signed into law. Yeah. Um, so it's um, it's a natural fit, is kind of my take on it. Um, it's not going to be a giant money maker. I mean, I think these loans have what one percent interest, uh, maybe a small origination fee. They're not going to be like big cash cows. I mean. You know, b- banks are making a whole lot more loaning on like autos and mortgages than they are on this, but it's a real natural fit. I mean, PayPal obviously has a great relationship with millions of small businesses, especially those that primarily operate online. Um, you know, is like the leading online payment company. Yeah. Uh, Intuit's got QuickBooks, so they have a, a lot of insight into payroll figures, um, and the, the whole small business, the PPP uh, loans are all based on you know payroll figures. They're meant to keep payroll going, and that's the part of loan that could actually be forgiven. Um, and Square is the latest one. We're, we're starting to hear rumbles that they're being included in this. And um, I checked, and it's not official news yet, but Square has a, a payment protection program part of its website up already that pretty much indicates that they're going to be accepting these type of loans through Square Capital. Yeah. So not only do they have the Square Capital Lending Division, but they also – Square obviously has relationships <laughs> with millions of – I think it was – 
well over two million small businesses in America that that use Square services. So it's it's a natural extension, I would say. And these companies are really good at getting money places fast, which is important. Yeah, and I mean that's to your point about Square. There was you know Jack had fired off a tweet uh, back on April tenth. It just said simple and fast instructions on how to get your $1,200 stimulus check from the U.S. government. And yes, you can deposit it directly to your cash app for instant use, no bank account needed. Uh, and, and we had noted on a show previously that he was he was getting out there on Twitter and saying, hey, listen, USG, this is what we do. We're really good at this type of thing. Let us help. Um, and so it's really nice to see because I think you're right. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, this isn't some big cash cow for these companies. It's not like they're going to make a ton of money doing this, but that's really not the point. I mean, they're being seen as the solution. I think it's one more uh it's one more sort of cha- one more one more sort of link in the chain, I think, towards towards this idea that they they really are part of the future of our of our banking system. I mean, these these are it is essentially banks of the future, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, you actually bring up a really good point that they're letting people deposit their stimulus checks right to the Cash App. Um, I think that could be the biggest benefit to Square in this. Um, you know, thousands of dollars coming into this, the Cash App right after they launched their investing platform. Remember? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good could, point. Um, could eventually be a nice little catalyst for that. But no, these these companies are they need to be part of the solution. Um, the brick and mortar banks are. You know, I, we've talked about them. I love Bank of America. I love Wells Fargo as a business, but they're historically inefficient at getting money in the hands of consumers fast. Yeah. Um, so these companies need to be part of the solution because when it comes to you know the cash burn that some of these small businesses are seeing from keeping their payroll going, like you know, time's a factor here. It is. I'm glad you said that. That's a key word. I think is time, and um, and that's what this really all boils down to is giving. We're just trying to buy time. Because I mean, as, as we've talked before, I mean, what's going on right now? This isn't a fundamental uh, flaw in the economy, right? What we're seeing right now is something well beyond uh, the economy. It's a public health issue, but and, and so I think the response, generally speaking, has been the right one. You got you you have to shut things down to the extent that you can, and 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 to see you know our government getting out there and utilizing the tools they can to buy as much time as as they can. Because that's ultimately what we really need. I mean, it's encouraging to see. And you know, we talked before about companies like PayPal and and Square. And and, and while all of these companies are withdrawing guidance and, and they really don't have any clarity as to how um, revenues are, are shaping up for 2020, it was a pretty safe assumption that there were going to be fewer dollars flowing through their networks for the foreseeable future, just due to the lack of commerce, due to the fact that all of these businesses are closed and people aren't spending money uh, quite the same way. This this certainly counters that at least a little bit, right? It does help make up for some of those lost dollars flowing through their networks now that they're able to participate. Right. I mean, this is the whole point of the stimulus was to not necessarily play, replace all lost economic activity, but to definitely give the economy a, a bigger shot in the arm than it would have otherwise, especially with the stimulus payments. But the small business lending, I mean, this is they're this is going to go to a payroll. This is going to go to paying vendors to keep the businesses going. It's you know it's money flowing through the system, and I mean their networks are. I, I we're yet to see. We'll as earnings season really kicks in over the next few weeks, we'll start to see how much this has affected you know PayPal, Square, and this could definitely keep money flowing through their platforms more much more than a normal that otherwise would have. Yeah, and I feel like there's some brand equity that they earn from this. Um, probably. 
probably boosts the switching costs somewhat. I mean, I think it really does sort of solidify these these companies and their their status, their, the role that they play in, in our economy going forward. Now, I mean, the one thing I, you know, every, every, every bull has, has its bear, right? I mean, what is, is there a downside to these companies doing this? Do you feel like there's, there are, there are risks involved here that, that we should, we should be concerned with? Well, not really. I mean, I, I mentioned these aren't high interest loans, but the flip side of that is that they're guaranteed by the small business administrations, which, essentially takes all the risk off the lender. Right. Um, in this case, I don't think the the lenders are retaining any of the loans. I know in, um, with the Fed's new lending initiative, that has nothing to do with this. I think the banks keep 5% of the loan and sell 95% back to the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I heard something like there's that. No, there's no split in this case. They're, the banks are just going to get some interest. They're going to maybe get a little origination fee. Not a ton of money, but not a ton of risk either. No. So, I mean, yeah, not a lot of upside, maybe not a lot of... I mean, not a lot of obvious upside, but but not a lot of obvious downside either. I mean, it does seem like just a great sort of long-term catalyst for these businesses, really solidifying their role for the future. And, and ultimately, that's what investing is. Investing is about how we view the future. And I think that uh, for a lot of us, we you know we feel like companies like Intuit and PayPal and Square and and the like are going to be a big part of the future. And so it's it's certainly nice to see them participating in this. Um, Let's let's take a take a turn here and talk a little bit about this Warren Buffett guy because um, it, it, we we talk a lot about Buffett and Munger and Berkshire. I mean, they're, they're our north star in a lot of ways as investors, and it, it's been very interesting to see in all of this chaos what he's been doing. Now, you published an article about this on Fool.com today, and, and so I want to jump into it from that perspective because he's making. Buffett, Buffett's making some interesting moves here, and, and there are three key moves that you were focusing in here on, and it sounds like selling is is the theme here for the most part. Right. Well, first of all, I apologize if anyone hears my dog growling in the background. There's, <laughs> That's all right. Th- these days, there's someone literally walking by my house every 10 seconds. <laughs> we're just add- adding the um, personalized touch <laughs> during, <laughs> during the coronavirus crisis. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so to bring back to, to that point, yeah, uh, two of the three big moves Buffett's made have been sales. Um, but before you take the word big there with a, a grain of salt, um, the first one, he sold shares in two of the major airline stocks they own, uh, Delta and Southwest. Um and the third is they sold he sold about thirty million dollars worth of Bank of New York Mellon shares. Now let's start with the airlines. Here's all both Buffett owned shares in all four airlines, and here are the percentages. He owns just under ten percent of American Airlines, nine point two percent of Delta, nine point nine percent of Southwest, and eight point eight percent of United. So those percentages are not accidents. Yeah, I'm sensitive. It's really <laughs> Right. It's not desirable to own more than 10% of any company. It, it creates more regulatory requirements. Once you own over 10%, you have to... This is The, re, the whole reason we knew about these um, transactions is only because they own more than 10% and had to disclose it. So, it's not that desirable. So, these were relatively small sales, and they brought both positions just under that 10% threshold. So, my gut is that's why. On the um, the bank side... A thirty million dollar sale of a three point three billion dollar position is nothing. Right, um, is the first <laughs> key point, and this is another kind of ten percenter thing. Um, Bank of New York, um, Buffett didn't own more than ten percent of this up till recently, um, 
they owned about eight and a half percent as at the end of the year. But Bank of New York has been buying its shares back. I mean, until the coronavirus crash, had been buying its shares back at kind of a breakneck pace, like about ten percent, a rate of about ten percent per year of their stock. So that eight point five percent stake crept over the ten percent threshold through no fault of his so, own, really. Through no yeah. fault of his own. So this looked like he was just paring back the stake a little bit to get under that. Because a bank especially is not very desirable to own more than 10% of unless you really want to have an active role in the business, yeah. uh, which Buffett really doesn't. He has no desire to run Bank of America. He wants to invest in it, um, or Goldman Sachs, or any of those for that matter. Um, so this is one of Buffett's bank positions. This is one of, I think, his favorite bank stocks out of all his bank positions. And like I said, he sold less than 1% of the position. And the, the two key dates to know with Buffett I don't think he's being he's selling stocks at all other than for regulatory reasons right now. Yeah. The two key dates to know are the Berkshire meeting that comes up uh, the first first week of May, um, that first Saturday in May, um, when, when we get uh, the Berkshire's latest earnings report, we'll get a glimpse at how much that giant cash stockpile has changed. Uh, remember, Buffett ended the year with uh, $128 billion worth of cash. We'll get a nice little glimpse of where that changed. And with no big... You know, purchase announcements. If that dropped to say like you know seventy or eighty billion, we'd pretty much know he's been buying stocks. <laughs> You're not going to get a glimpse at what actual stocks he bought until the second important date, which is when Berkshire's uh, 13F filing with the SEC comes out, which happens May the 15th. So that always happens 45 days after the end of the quarter in question. So we'll we'll see what Buffett did in the first quarter then. So. Don't look when you look at these. You'll you'll see headlines. Oh, Buffett's selling all his stocks and things like that. That's nothing could be further from the truth. These are minor sales. They brought all three positions down under a key threshold. And by the way, the third thing where it said uh, the third move Buffett made, he's actually raising money on the European debt markets where he can borrow for like zero, literally zero percent in Europe. Yeah. Um, so even if they can earn you know a two or three percent return on that money, it's kind of a no brainer. <laughs> Um, so not only did Buffett have 128 billion in cash, but it looks like they're raising more money for you know presumably investment purposes. So we'll we'll see when um, these things come out. But don't make don't make the mistake of thinking that Buffett's given up on the stock market or thinks it's going to crash more. Any of those you know sky is falling headlines you read with us. Yeah, and for for listeners who want to check that article out, we will make sure to tweet that out on the industry focus feed today. That was a really great take there, Matt. Appreciate that. And before Thank we you. continue, a reminder for those of you looking for more stock ideas that now's a great time to check out our stock advisor service, where you get stock recommendations from David and Tom Gardner every month, Best Buys Now, and a whole lot more. Why is it a great time? It's a great time because if you go to if.fool.com you can take advantage of a special 50% discount that we have for our industry-focused listeners. That's right, 50% discount for all of you awesome listeners who keep chiming in there with so many kind words during this time. We really appreciate that. So make sure to check it out, if.fool.com. Okay, Matt, let's jump into a few listener questions here. We had uh, a listener that reached out to us on Twitter. We got a couple of email that I thought would be uh, fun to, to hit on today. Now, this this uh, first question we got from Derek Main, a friend of ours. He reached out on Twitter, and this is right up your alley, Matt, so I'm going I'm to look forward to your answer here. But <laughs> sure. Derek asks, he says, for my portfolio management class, and Derek is, uh, is at Clemson University, by the way, so shout out to Clemson out there. Even though I went to Wofford, I'm not going to hold that against you, Derek. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I went to I went to Carolina, which is the direct rival. So. My wife went to Furman, so we've got the bases covered. <laughs> uh, but Derek says, for my portfolio management class, we're doing a stock picking project, and I got assigned REITs, which is nice because they're easy to identify. But on the other hand, they're a lot different from normal stocks. My initial screening was small and mid-cap, with anything under 100% payout ratio, just to cut the list down, which got me to around 25 any suggestions on what would be some of the better metrics to use for screening REITs? Once we get down to the final three, we do a thorough analysis of each one, but I'm trying to figure out the best parameters to work with. I was thinking about using either debt to equity or return on equity and return on assets. Any thoughts? So, Matt, uh, you're a REIT guy here. You you study these things uh, all the time. What do you feel like some of the better metrics there for, for screening REITs? Sure. Well, debt to equity is okay. I like I, my favorite debt metric with REITs is called interest coverage, meaning um, how many times does the company's cash flow cut, or I'm sorry, does the company's earnings cover its uh, debt obligations? In other words, if it pays out, if it costs uh, two hundred million dollars a year to make its debt payments, and it's earning a billion dollars, then it would be five times interest coverage. Right. So that's a good one to look at if you want to go the debt route. Um, with REITs, I always I like to look at a ten-year dividend growth history, mm. um, especially if that ten years, which it doesn't anymore, but well, actually now it will. <laughs> if the ten years includes both an up uh, bull market and a bear market, you want to see if a, uh, how a REIT um, raises its dividend, which is a great indicator of financial health if it can keep raising its dividend year after year. But you want to see that it's able to do that in every market. So, ten-year uh, dividend growth rates are really good one to look at. Um, and like I said, interest coverage is good on the debt front, and yeah, so that's kind of where I'm I'm at with that. He, he's on the right track with the hundred percent under hundred percent payout ratio. <laughs> yeah. um, well, because remember, REITs have high payout ratios. By definition, they pay out almost all of their income. Yeah. Um, so make sure you're looking at the FFO payout ratio. But you're you're a Clemson student. I'm sure you are. You're a smart guy. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, no question there. And I'm actually as soon as this as soon as this lockdown is lifted, I'm going to get to go down to Clemson and, and meet with Derek and uh, students and, and teachers down there and talk more about stocks. So looking to, looking forward to eventually getting back down there. But um, I, I do like that the coverage ratio. That's something I think that's really handy to look look at with with really any any business. Um, in in you know we talked about this a little bit on Motley Fool Money. It's really nice to look at that coverage ratio or looking looking at how. You know, many times you can push that that interest expense into that operating income or, or free cash flow number. And instead of looking at the trailing twelve months, I like your idea of looking at it over a long period of time and see how it covers uh, both ends of the spectrum there. And also thinking about it going forward, right? What are some of these businesses? What do their finances look like? Over the course of the next year, two years now, because there are going to be some major disruptions, and so uh, mm-hmm. you know some companies I think will be a little bit more prepared than others. Uh, we got an email from Heidi Gilroy, and Heidi says, "Hello, I love your show. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for doing what you do. I've been hearing a lot about stock buybacks. Can you explain why a company might go into debt to buy back stocks, and why stock buybacks in general might be seen as negative? Thanks." And thanks again, Heidi. Uh, very good question there. Stock buybacks in general, always a good question. I, I do really love the angle there. Why companies would go into debt to do that, and, and you know how how do you generally view that, Matt? If if a company goes into debt to fund buybacks, well, if a company goes into debt to fund buybacks, that means they really think their stock is worth more than it's trading for. Right. If your stock's trading for thirty dollars a share, and you just know that you have fifty dollars worth of assets for every share. 
it could actually make sense to you know you're you're borrowing ten dollars to essentially buy twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. So that that's where that, as far as why are buybacks considered negative, they're portrayed that way a lot in the news, and it it all comes down to one are the buybacks done responsibly, meaning are is the company spending so much on buybacks that they have no so-called emergency fund, which is what we're seeing with the airlines. That's why we're seeing so much. Um, I, f- I forget which one it said uh, 96% of free cash flow is used on buybacks. Yeesh. That's a little excessive. That's a lot. <laughs> so, but if a buyback's done responsibly and for the right reasons, meaning you're using you know, 20% of your free cash flow to buyback shares that you think are worth more than they're trading for, there's nothing inherently wrong with a buyback. That's a very common way to that companies return capital to shareholders. It actually has some advantages over dividends, being that you know if a company pays you dividends, that's taxable income. If it uses that money instead to buy back its own shares, it increases your the value of your investment, but then it's it doesn't produce taxable income for you. Right. So that's the big advantage of buybacks. I don't necessarily think it's a negative, but it can be used negatively, like most financial intru- instruments. Well, yeah, and it's been it's been a real headline here lately because this perception, and I mean, it's it, you know there is some reality reality to it in, in that some companies are obviously in very uh, difficult financial times right now. And in, in, you know, you can you can look back to well, they spent all this money on share buybacks, and now they have no money to be prepared for what's going on right now. And I mean, there is there's a grain of truth to that, right? I mean, we've we've even seen companies that um, you know in normal times will will buyback stock with excess cash, and they've suspended those programs to make sure that they can look out for the stakeholders that matter most, right? I mean, it's it's I think we're seeing more and more uh, this this all stakeholders. Mentality and and Starbucks, I think, is a great example of a company that they, they, you know. Hey, listen, they can fund those share buybacks if they want, but but the more important and pressing issue right now is to make sure that their partners, their stakeholders, and employees um, are taken care of first and foremost, because the company ultimately doesn't exist without them. I mean, they can start that share buyback uh, program back up whenever they want. I, I've never been a fan of a company going into debt to buy back shares because. It just to me seems it seems almost a little bit too greedy, and there's a lot of data out there that just shows that companies tend to get buybacks wrong. They do they do tend to buy their shares back at pretty elevated levels. Um, I was always a big fan of Buffett's line that he drew. I think it was 1.2 times or or less right than book value or something like that, where right. they would actually yeah. consider buying back. And now they've they've resorted to more of Warren's and Charlie's discretion, but they, they've also earned that goodwill, I think, with a lot of us, too. So, um, yeah, share buybacks, a very interesting philosophical discussion. We could probably have an entire show on that and still not really cover it all. But a very good question, nonetheless, Heidi. Thanks so much for asking. And we have one more question here from Roy Klazowski. And Roy says, hey there, I'm looking to take a trick out of the Jason Moser playbook in taking a basket approach to the emerging market fintech space. I already have Mercado Libre and Pago Seguro. To complete my basket, I'm looking into Stoneco and was hoping to add one more. Any suggestions? Thanks a bunch. Financials Monday is a can't-miss-every-week Roy, thank you for those kind words. Really appreciate you. Really appreciate you saying that. And hey, listen, you know I love the basket approach. Uh, the war on cash basket has, has been one that uh, has worked out very well. But this is, sounds like Roy's looking for an emerging markets war on cash basket, Matt, and he's got a few good ideas in there. Do you have one more for him? Um, 
I mean, I know, I know this is kind of a boring answer, but I think if you're looking for an emerging market, emerging markets payment basket, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be complete without either Visa or Mastercard. Yeah. Um, both of those are really pressing the cross-border payments, especially into emerging emerging markets. Those are countries where you know most people don't have credit cards yet, things like that. Um, when when credit cards really take start to take over, you know, Latin America, for example, they're going to have Visa or Mastercard logos Very on them. Very true. So. I'd say you're, the three you have are great. I love Stone Co. Especially is one of my favorites. But I don't think that basket would be complete without a Visa or Mastercard in there. But since you're a regular listener, I'm I, I'm inclined to believe you own one of those already. <laughs> Just a hunch. Probably so. Probably so. I'll I'll throw one sort of unconventional answer out there because it's not necessarily a payments provider on its own, but Shopify is really interesting in that it gives you open access to Stripe. And while Stripe is not a publicly traded company as of today, and it may be down the road, no one really knows. I think we'd all love to see it at some point. But Stripe is is the backbone of Shopify's payment processing. And so owning Shopify gives you exposure to that Stripe network. And Stripe is is a square like business in its in its um in in the metrics that it's turning in, in the market share, and in the neat innovative ways it's approaching the fintech space. So, uh, if you want to get a little exposure exposure to Stripe, you could do that through owning um, some Shopify. And and I mean, I'll tell you as a Shopify shareholder myself, I'm very happy that I, I own those shares. And um, you kind of get a two for one there. You get the e-commerce play and you get the payments all rolled into one, man. I like that call. All right. Well, let's wrap up this week with our ones to watch. And earnings season is just getting ready to kick off here, Matt. So, what's your one to watch this week? Well, in the spirit of earnings season, I'm looking at JP Morgan Chase. Um, they're the first big bank to report uh, tomorrow, actually. Um, so, I'm, I'll be watching that one. I like it. I, I like JP Morgan's business a lot. They're kind of on the forefront of a lot of, of most major banking trends. Um, just recently, we saw that they're. They're increasing their mortgage standards for um, to a, I think a 700 credit score yeah. to, to try to you know get ahead of the increased risk that comes with. I this. like that move curious, actually a lot. I I do. It's a necessary move. I'd like I I'm curious to see what they have to say on the conference call about it maybe and how it might affect the business. Um, we're seeing home buyer, home builders get absolutely crushed today and I think that's a big reason why because uh, banks are tightening up their lending. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I'm and I think uh, J P Morgan just has a the ability to kind of set the tone for bank earnings. So that's one I'm watching this week. Um, it's not in my portfolio yet. Yet. <laughs> Qualify that. Uh, that's cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to actually go with a smaller uh, bank. I'm going to keep an eye out on a Live Oak Bank. And that's one that, that we've talked about before on the show. One I know that you know very well, Matt. And we were uh, very fortunate to, to interview the president of the bank there, Huntley Garriott, on the show a little while back. And I, I just, given their um, tech nature and given their their small business administration focus, their focus on on supporting those small businesses out there. I'm just going to be really fascinated. They have earnings coming up on April 22nd. I really can't wait to, to read, to hear what they, uh, how they're seeing the current landscape, how they're able to help uh, what they've got planned for the near future here to, to be a part of the solution, because I do feel like that's a bank that is going to be a big part of the solution as well. And, and I tell you, man, Live Oak is... is um, I only own one small bank in Ameris Bank Corp, but Live Oak is, I'm really, really, 
I like that bank a lot. I've got that on my watch list, man. If I'd I, I think about adding a few shares to my portfolio on that one, but um, you know, we'll see. I mean, earnings earnings season is going to shape up to be a doozy, I'm sure. But but Matt, we really appreciate you taking the time out this week to join. Hope you had a nice Easter weekend with your family and everybody staying healthy. We did. We actually got good weather up until last night, so that was we were very fortunate. We were able to play outside and stuff like oh, that. Good deal. We'll make sure and uh, keep you guys in mind, and we'll see you next week. Alrighty. And that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com and let us know how things are going. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to our man Austin Morgan for keeping us on the rails. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.